I invite you to uh, open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1. We are beginning this Sunday uh, a preaching series through the entire book of Joshua, uh, 24 chapters worth. So we'll be in this book uh, for a little while. Uh, Joshua chapter 1, I invite you to follow along, uh, reading the first nine verses. It says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses." From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Moses, my servant, is dead. It is with that obituary notice that the book of Joshua opens. What a man Moses had been. Moses had a superb world-class education. Moses had solid administrative skills. He had military training and experience. He was a brilliant writer. He was a brilliant scholar. And now he's gone. After four decades of good leadership, of godly leadership, the people of Israel are at a significant time of transition. And the question that looms large in everybody's heart and everybody's mind is, will Joshua be a success or not? In fact, how will he be a success? Because, I mean, Joshua's no Moses. Uh, to use a cliche, Joshua has big shoes to fill. He's not gifted in the same areas that Moses was. He didn't have the same sort of education. He had a different personality. But what we're going to discover in this book is that Joshua is a success. Not because of who he was, but because of who God is. It's because God's presence was living and real in his life. It's because Joshua trusted in the Lord. It's because he followed the Lord unquestioningly in obedience to his word. 
And so we come to our, our text this morning and we find a record of the Lord's commissioning of Joshua as a new leader of the nation. And as part of that commissioning, the Lord issues three commands and there is a glorious promise attached to each of the commands. And so what I want to do is to take these three commands and the promises attached to them and I want to set before you how each of us, like Joshua, can experience success in whatever endeavor God sets before you and me. I've entitled the message, Good Success. It's a phrase that occurs twice in this text. Success comes, I want you to notice, first of all, as you and I trust God. Trusting God when you don't know how your circumstances are going to turn out. Trusting God when you can see no further than the step in front of you. Trusting God when the way forward seems impossible. What is the Lord's command to Joshua in verse 2? The command is, cross the Jordan River. Lead the people across the river into the land of promise. That's a frightening command. That's an overwhelming command to carry out because if you go over to chapter 3 of Joshua and verse 15, there's a couple of reasons why Joshua hearing that would have naturally drawn back. Because in chapter 3 verse 15, we discover that when the Lord issued this command, the Jordan River is at flood stage. Nobody with a bit of common sense wades into raging, rushing floodwaters. Nobody does that. It's dangerous, easily swept away and destroyed. So he comes, there they are on the other side of the river, across from Jericho. And during normal times, the, the riverbed of the Jordan there is about 100 feet wide, not, not horribly wide. But in ancient times, during the flood season, the floodplain was about a mile wide. So try to imagine that. There's a mile wide floodplain. The water is rushing along. Who knows what brambles and snares are in the water. There is no bridge. There are no boats. There's no possible way to cross. And the Lord says, at flood season, when the river's at its worst, I want you to take the step of faith and cross the river. What's he going to do? You look at verse 10 of chapter 3. And there is a listing of the people groups that were in the land. And if you count them up, there are seven of them. Seven powerful kingdoms in that land of promise. If Joshua and the people could somehow, someway, ever get across the river, which of course is an impossibility, but if they ever could, there are seven nations in the land. It would be a declaration of war. The seven would unite together and Joshua and the people would be wiped out. That's human reasoning. So what does Joshua do? As we will see in these opening chapters of the book, Joshua takes that first difficult, seemingly impossible step of faith. And maybe you have found in life, as I have, that the first step in any endeavor is often the hardest step, isn't it? You have a new job. And you're going to work in a new setting for the first time. Walking in the door that very first day, that very first time, that's often the hardest step. 
Or if you're a young person and you go to a new school for the first time, walking into the doors of that school for the first time can be fear-provoking, can be intimidating. That first step, pulling that school door open, that's the most difficult step. Uh, If you need to have a difficult conversation with somebody, what's the hardest part of the conversation? Starting out. You know, how do you begin? What do you say first? That, that first step is the most difficult. When you want to witness to somebody, what have you found? What have I found? Getting the first words out, isn't it? Taking that first step. There are a lot of examples, but that first step is the hardest. But success comes at God's direction as we step out by faith. Back in uh, 1888... There was an old country doctor in Georgia, lived uh, just outside the little sleepy town of Atlanta, Uh, and he tied up uh, his horse to a post. He rode into Atlanta, tied up his horse, and uh, he walked into a local drugstore and uh, went into the back, and for over an hour, he and the pharmacist negotiated back and forth. Finally, an agreement was reached, and so the old country doctor walked out to his buggy, and he hauled into the back of the drugstore a kettle. Uh, A wooden paddle came along with it to stir the darkish contents in the kettle. Well, the pharmacist looked carefully at this kettle that was there, not a very big one, uh, looked at what was in the kettle, and he turned over his entire life savings to that country doctor. $500. Uh, If you put it in modern money, somewhere between $15,000 and $20,000. That's all the pharmacist had, and he turned over his life savings. And so the transaction was complete. Now the pharmacist had the kettle, he had the wooden paddle, he had the darkish liquid on the inside, and the doctor had sold it to him saying, this stuff will cure headaches, he said to the pharmacist. And it's a really marvelous tonic. If you take it, it'll give you a sense of vigor and well-being. So he purchased this kettle for 500 bucks with the contents. Oh, but he also bought a little piece of paper on which the doctor had written the secret formula for what was in the kettle. The contents of that kettle helped to build Atlanta into the massive metropolis it is today. The contents of that kettle are found in virtually every country in the world. You've bought it many times yourselves. Last year, the company marketing what was in the kettle earned $45 billion. The name of the pharmacist was Asa Candler, and if you haven't guessed by now, the stuff in the kettle was Coca-Cola. 500 bucks. Asa Candler had faith in the word of the doctor. The doctor said, this stuff will pep you up. If you drink it, you know, there's caffeine in it. I mean, you drink this stuff, you'll feel a lot better in the course of a day. If you get a little bit sleepy, you drink this stuff, it'll be great. And by the way, I can imagine you'll make some money with it too. The doctor had no idea. Well, what Asa Candler did was, by faith, he took the word of the doctor, he bought the formula, Uh, And he took his entire life savings. That's being all in, isn't it? And a giant multi-billion dollar corporation exists today. 
Now, I use the word faith for what Asa Candler did for his investment of $500. And in a sense, it is faith, but faith in a lesser sense of the word than when the Bible uses that word. Asa Candler believed the word of the country doctor, reputable man, an honest man, not there to cheat and deceive and take somebody's life savings. He knew that wasn't the case. The doctor said, I believe you can make money with this. And Asa Candler believed that, but you never know. You buy the formula, you begin to market the product. It might be a success, it might not be a success. Who knows? The doctor's honest, but who knows how it's going to turn out. So for Asa Candler, it was faith in a lesser sense of the word. It was a calculated risk. Uh, It was a leap in the dark. But, But that's not really what biblical faith is. Biblical faith is not staking everything on your own subjective sense that something's going to work out. Biblical faith is not a spirit of optimism. Biblical faith is not confidence in your resources or abilities. Yes, God will come alongside, but my resources, my abilities can do it, and God will kind of push me up over the edge to make it a success. That's not faith. That's not how it works. Faith is not wishful thinking. Biblical faith has a foundation. Biblical faith is something that is objective. Biblical faith is centered on unchanging truth. It's not a shot in the dark. It's not maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. But when you take God at His word, God's character, God cannot lie, God cannot deny Himself, He cannot deny His promises. And so biblical faith is not marked by, I hope it'll work out, kind of like Asa Candler. I mean, everything seems to line up, and, I, and, and I'm pretty sure I hope it will. Might not, but I hope it will. Biblical faith is never like that. Biblical faith, when God says something in His Word, when His promises are true, you can say, I will step out and take God at His Word, and you can be confident, absolutely confident, that what God has said cannot be shaken. So faith is, biblical faith, is resting the weight of your entire life upon the promises, the word, the character of God. And so Joshua was a success, not because he trusted his own intuition, not because he relied on his own calculations, but because he believed God's promise. And what's the promise here? You notice in verse 3, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. So he could be confident because when they crossed the river, every place you walk, my promise to you is, it's yours. And Joshua said, all right, if you've said it, I believe it, it will be so. And so success, good success, to use the phrase from our text, comes as you and I trust God completely. Secondly, I want you to notice that success comes as you and I give God our fears. I want you to notice verse 6 and 7 and 9. Verse 6 begins this way, be strong and courageous. Notice verse 7, only be strong and very courageous. Notice verse 9, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed. Fear is something that we all understand. 
There have been times in my life, and I'm sure in your life, where you've experienced that icy grip of fear that just grabs hold of your heart and mind and soul and won't let go. I'm sure you, like me, have experienced from time to time the disabling power of fear. Um, the experience of not being able to focus on anything. Do you know what I'm talking about? You, you're, something is so weighing on you, something is so fear-provoking, you can't concentrate on much of anything. That kind of fear is what I'm talking about. Uh, maybe you heard uh, the old story about the fellow that was asked to give speech at uh, his uh, was a church banquet, and a little fundraising banquet, and he was terrified of being in front of people, but for whatever reason, he agreed to give a little talk at uh, the fundraising dinner. And so when it came time for him to speak, uh, he stood up and said, you know, when I came here tonight, only God and I knew what I was going to say. Now only God knows what I'm going to say. <laughs> fear. Fear taking hold. Uh, and what I want you to notice here in this text, this call to be strong and courageous, it's three times in nine verses. Don't miss that. Three times in nine verses, uh, F.B. Meyer, great uh, Baptist uh, pastor and evangelist in the late 19th and 20th centuries, thinking about that, put it this way, and, and I like what he writes. He said, God's call to be strong meant that Joshua felt weak. God's call to be courageous meant that Joshua felt fear. God's call not to be discouraged meant, like, meant that Joshua felt like giving up. And that's true, isn't it, for you and me? Sometimes, for you and me, we feel like giving up. We sense our own weakness. Fear takes hold. So how can you and I be courageous? You notice the promise at the end of verse 9. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's a reason for courage. You recall Psalm 23, when I walk through the dark valley, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me, David the psalm writer says. Joshua needed that promise of God's presence so much so that it's repeated 12 times in the book. You think Joshua needed it? I mean, it's like, it seems like every other chapter. Don't forget, Joshua, I'm with you. 12 times in this book. And you notice something else about this promise. To what degree was God going to be with Joshua? And I want you to notice verse 5, where it says, Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Think about Moses' years of ministry. Moses withstanding the most powerful ruler on earth, the Pharaoh of Egypt. Moses leading the people across the Red Sea through the mighty uh, miracle-working power of God. Moses had experienced God's provision in every circumstance imaginable for 40 years in the wilderness. God had been with Moses in times of battle and hunger and thirst and rebellion and failure and uncertainty. Moses' life was a testimony to the power and presence of God in every circumstance imaginable. And the Lord says to Joshua, guess what? I'm going to be with you in the same way. What an encouragement. Thinking about fear, uh, I can remember the fear that I experienced when I 
resigned from my first um, pastoral call. I was pastor down in uh, Lesur, Minnesota, which is uh, just about an hour uh, outside Minneapolis, about 30 minutes from the outer suburbs. Uh, Word of Life Lutheran Brethren Church. I, I resigned to take a full-time call uh, at the Free Lutheran Bible College and Seminary in the Twin Cities. I'd been teaching there part-time, pastoring full-time. Uh, they issued me a full-time call, and I eagerly accepted the call. Uh, that's another story for another day to tell you about that one. But then it dawned on me, as soon as I accepted it, so what are we going to do about a house? Um, we need to buy one. One big problem, in those days, uh, Laurel and I lived paycheck to paycheck. She said to the kids, we couldn't even buy a popsicle in those days, and she's not really exaggerating. We, we lived paycheck to paycheck, literally. We had zero savings, and by zero I mean zero. There was nothing in the bank. And there weren't all the programs there are today for first-time home buyers and all of that. So that's out the window. So the, the dean of the schools put me in touch with, it, with a Christian realtor who was a member of one of the Free Lutheran churches in the Twin Cities. And he said, now you know you've got to come up with a down payment. And I said, we don't have any. <laughs> well, you can't buy a house if you don't have a down payment. So he said, why don't you talk to your parents? See if they can help you. So Laurel approached her parents. I approached my parents. Uh, both of them said yes, gave us uh, an amount of money. It wasn't much, but it was all that each set of parents could afford. So we started looking. We had this little down payment. And so Monday was my day off. And so every Monday, we'd pack up all the kids, Karen and, and her two brothers. We'd put them in the car, drive them up to Grandma and Grandpa's house in the Twin Cities. And we would start looking for a house. And... We looked week after week after week. And what we discovered is the houses we could afford were in crime-ridden areas of the city. Or they were way too small, like one or two bedrooms and, you know, nothing that, I mean, we couldn't fit in there. Um, or they were in such terrible tumble-down shape that probably wouldn't want to buy it. And the ones we liked that we could fit into were totally out of our price range. So time was running short. This went on for several months. Every week we looked. And I can remember time was running short. There was a house in Golden Valley, Minnesota, which is an inner ring suburb of Minneapolis on the west side. And uh, the house needed uh, some significant repairs because the people that had been there hadn't taken real good care of it. But it was kind of in the price range. We, we thought we could afford it. And the realtor said to us, you know what, you better have an inspection first. Well, I don't have 500 bucks for an inspection, whatever it was in those days. I don't have the money. You need to have an inspection. I, I would just warn you, he said. So we got an inspection. Thank God we did. One of the most significant problems was the house and the foundation were separating. If we had bought that house, talk about a disaster. And we were getting near the end. It wasn't that far from the fall of the year when I had to start teaching. And we didn't have a house. And so I remember we stood in the driveway. We had this inspection report. And I said to the realtor, in fear, he, could, he knew I was afraid. And I said to him, what do we do now? And he said, what we do now is pray. And our realtor led us in prayer standing in the driveway. That's the kind of realtor to have that prays for you. So he led Laurel and me in prayer, two of us filled with 
fear. And so still with that anxiety, I thought, i got to talk to the dean of the seminary. And so I went to his office on campus, and I said, I don't know what to do. I said, we can't afford a house. I said, does the school have any finances that would help us to buy a house? Uh, no, he said, we, we, we don't have funds like that. There's no on-campus housing. And I said, well, we've been looking for months. I mean, we're now in the summertime. School starts in August. Um, and we were afraid. And so I was sitting there. I can still picture this. Sitting there in the chair in front of his desk. And he said to me, so Craig, did God call you here or not? Well, what am I going to say? I said, well, yeah, God called me here. And he said, well, that being so, do you not think he will provide for you? Well, that's not the answer I wanted. I was looking for money. <laughs> Just being honest. Do you not think that God will provide for you? Well, of course, I said, being a professor at a seminary, you, you know, you'd better say yes to that answer. Um, and so I said, yes. So we kept looking. It was a couple weeks later, we came across a house in Maple Grove. It was a repossession. And it was in a, in a beautiful, wonderful neighborhood. And immediately, the other houses we looked at, it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe not, kind of. This one, both Laurel and I said, this is it. We both had that sense, this is the house. We finally found it. And it would fit our family of five. It wasn't a large house, but we'd fit into it. Uh, it looked great on, uh, on the outside. Uh, it was up for sealed bid because it had been a VA loan and uh, the family had defaulted. And uh, they'd gotten kicked out of the house. Uh, the neighbors later told us, you know, those big uh, construction dumpsters that are, you know, I don't know how long they are. They had taken out of the house two heaping dumpsters of trash, had kicked in the doors on the inside, things like that. They were smokers, so the ceiling in the living room had stains from tobacco smoke on it. But we said to ourselves, this is the house. Well, there was a minimum bid. The government had set the minimum bid on this thing. And so we took what our parents had given us for a down payment, and then figuring out my salary, you know how that works, you can't have a, you know, over a certain percentage of your money going into housing. So figured out what we could afford, and it was just, I don't remember the exact amount, but it was like 200 bucks over the absolute minimum. And the realtor said, there is no way you're going to get the house for that price. It's in a great neighborhood. You need to come up with more cash. Why don't you go back to your parents and see what they can do? So we both went back to our parents. Laurel's parents said no. My parents said no. So that was the end of that. But I said to the realtor, I said, he said, there, there's no sense in even bidding. And, and I looked on the counter in the kitchen. There were, there were realtor cards all over the place. I mean, a lot of people had looked at this place. And I said, but we're going to bid. And he said, you know what? I'm going to throw in a couple hundred bucks of my own money just to make it look a little more respectable. He did. The realtor actually put in cash on our bid, believe it or not. <laughs> and so the bids were collected. And uh, he said, I'll let you know Monday morning what comes. So Monday morning he called me on the phone. And he said, guess what? You didn't get the house. And I said, well, I'm not surprised you told us that. Uh, he said, and, I, and I asked him what the bid was. It was like for like $18,000 more than we had bid or something like that. 
And so I said, well, I, I, I'm, I'm not surprised at all. And I said, what do we do? I guess we keep looking. He said, well, it's Monday morning. He said, you usually come on Mondays. I'll look up some houses. You get the kids together, get them to grandma's house. We'll meet at my office in about an hour and a half, and we'll start looking. So we got everything packed up. Literally, we were getting ready to walk out the door when the phone rang. And on the other end was my realtor, Dennis, and he was laughing. And finally, he said, something has happened that has never happened in all my years of real estate. He said, after they awarded the house to the highest bidder, they decided all of a sudden to revoke the bid because of insufficient financing. He said, I've seen bids revoked, but they do it up front. They see, is this a legitimate offer? They check it out, and then they give approval once they check it out. He said, I've never seen where they give a bid and then say, oh, oops, I guess not. And then he said, the person who bid the second highest amount, they've also been disqualified. You're the only other bidder. The house is yours. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. Being afraid, um, the River Jordan at flood stage, so to speak, we ever going to get across? But you know what? After all of those years, I still need to have God tell me like another 12 times. Don't be afraid. You know, I, I remember what God has done, but it's like, but this circumstance is a little different. Yeah, I know back there, but, but God has to say to me again and again, don't be afraid, be courageous, don't be discouraged. One of the great uh, Lutheran hymns uh, that I love from the 17th century, uh, written by uh, Paul Gerhardt, uh, he's known as the uh, Charles Wesley of Germany, tremendous hymn writer. Uh, he always challenges me with this hymn. The first stanza goes like this. Give to the winds your fears. Hope and be undismayed. God hears your sighs and counts your tears. God shall lift up your head. Through waves and clouds and storms, he gently clears the way. Wait for his time. So shall the night soon end in joyous day. I found that to be true. This isn't theology on a page. I found it to be actually true. And so success comes as you give to God your fears. One more point this morning. Success comes as you live in the Word of God, verses 7 and 8. And if I can paraphrase these two verses, the Lord says to Joshua, it's not enough to have a copy of the Bible in your possession. We all have copies of the Bible, uh, some of us more than one. And a lot of times it's a nice volume, it's leather bound, our name is stamped on the cover maybe, it has beautiful gilt edges on the pages. But the Lord says to Joshua, you need to take the Bible and not have it as a nice revered relic on a shelf someplace. But you need to possess the Bible in an inward way, in a personal way, in a life-changing way. So what does that mean? What did that mean for Joshua? What does that mean for you and me? First of all, it means to read it. Now, that's not specifically stated in verses 8 and 9, but it's presupposed by everything else that the Lord says in verses 8 and 9. Uh, to read the Bible so that your thinking, your outlook, your worldview is conformed to the heart and mind of God. I, I found these statistics, these are the most recent ones from uh, 2021 about Americans' uh, Bible reading habits. 11% of Americans read the Bible daily. 89% don't. 
Wonder why we have troubles? Wonder why we have unbiblical worldviews? So which category do you fit in? I'm not asking you to answer out loud. Are you in the 11% or the 89%? The, the importance of being in God's word, of reading it, and then notice what verse 8 says. Also to speak it. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. To be part of daily conversation. We live in a culture now where to speak the things of God's word is considered hate speech, for example. People resent it. They become antagonistic to it. At least today, people are kind of tolerant of Christian people as long as you keep your religious garbage in the church. But don't speak about it at a school board meeting. Don't speak about it at a city council meeting. Don't bring it to the workplace. Success comes as we are in God's word and we have the courage to speak it. But it goes beyond that. Meditate on it. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. That's a step beyond reading it. That's a step beyond learning more Bible stories. It means to digest it, to put it on the inside, to let the Holy Spirit work it over in your heart and your mind, to think about it, to pray over it, to draw conclusions from it, to meditate on it. But I know what most of you will say and what I say. You know, it's a great idea, and maybe you say to me, Pastor, that's a great idea, but, you know, I'm way too busy. Who has time for that? Well, before you and I go any further with that kind of rationalizing, note in the context the one for whom meditation is necessary. Meditation is for extremely busy people. It's not for people who have nothing else better to do. It's for people whose schedules are packed and who have responsibilities overlapping responsibilities. You think about Joshua. Joshua had, again, to use a cliche, many irons in the fire. He had great burdens. He had great responsibilities. There were significant demands on his time each and every day. And the call to him as an incredibly busy person was set aside time to meditate on the Word. I don't think any of us are busier than Joshua was. That is the call to him. That is the call to us. And then here's the bottom line. Obey it. So the scripture doesn't say, you know, read the Bible, see what so-and-so says in whatever book, and then see what you think about it. You know, read it over and, you know, you might decide to accept it, you might decide to reject it, see what you think. No, get into the book itself, find out what it says, meditate on it, pray over it, so that you might live it out, to obey it. And what is the result Notice in the end of verse 7 and verse 8, and this is where I drew my sermon title from. So do not turn, verse 7, from the Bible to the right hand or the left, that you may have good success. That's my sermon title in whatever you do. And then look at the end of verse 8. For then you will make your way prosperous when you seek to follow the word, and then you will have good success. There it is. Back in uh, 1860, and I'll, and I'll finish with, with this. Uh, back in 1860, William Russell was his name, founded the famous Pony Express. I was fascinated reading about the Pony Express when I was a kid. And the Pony Express took mail from St. Joseph, Missouri to Sacramento, California. 
It was a 2,000 mile trip. There were no transcontinental railroads. If you put it on a wagon train, who knows what month it will get there. And so the Pony Express promised that they would get mail from St. Joseph, Missouri to Sacramento, California in 10 days. And so they set up stations every 10 miles from St. Joseph, Missouri to Sacramento, California. And they recruited a large number of riders and they had a large number of horses at each and every Pony Express station. And so a rider would start out, for example, from St. Joseph, Missouri. He'd get on his horse, and he would put that horse into a gallop for 10 miles. At the end of 10 miles, there'd be a station. He'd get off the horse. There'd be another one waiting for him. He would swing his mail pouch and his little bit of gear, and he'd be on it in less than 60 seconds, and he'd be off galloping for another 10 miles. And so that would be his day when he finally came to the end of his shift, as it were. Not only would horses be changed, but a new rider would jump on and go all the way to Sacramento. Well, the rule of the company was the total weight on the horse could not exceed 165 pounds. And the rule was you could have a rider, a rider could weigh no more than 120, maximum weight. And because for these horses to go that quickly, you had to cut the weight on the back of the horse. So the riders had to be very slim. Most of them weighing 120 pounds were rather young, as you can imagine. And so they had four very thin mail pouches. Um, you, couldn't, you couldn't send packages. You couldn't send standard letters. You had to buy special, very thin, kind of like tissue paper to write on because you had to spare every ounce you could. The gear was limited. There were rules on what gear you could have. Uh, you could have a light rifle. You could have a Colt revolver. They, they, they cut down on everything except for one thing. Every rider had to carry a full-size Bible with him. You cut the weight of the mail, you cut the weight of the gear, but every rider, a full-size Bible on every leg of the journey. The founders of the Pony Express understood what was important. Joshua was a success, not because he was a brilliant commander, not because he had good training, not because he had superior leadership skills, but because he made it his job to know the Bible and live it out. Psalm 1, and I conclude with this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season. Its leaf also shall not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. Good success. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, you've called each of us to different callings in life. That's the beauty of the Christian church. That all of us are unique, unique training, interests, abilities, opportunities, life experiences. And you bring us all together in a beautiful way so that we might bring glory to you. Lord, you've given us your holy word and we are called as believers to know you better through the word. And then, Lord, as your spirit opens the word to us, as we understand more, as your spirit applies it to our hearts, as there are things that we need to repent of sometimes as we read. 
There are promises that we need to trust in as we read. Then, Lord, we find that our lives, whether we are active, incredibly busy, whether we are in school, whether we are retired, whatever our circumstances in life are, there is success for us as you define success, as we live in your word and as it becomes more and more a part of our lives. Lord, may our faith be anchored not in ourselves, in our abilities, in our cleverness, but anchored in your character, in your promises, in your word, to trust you, to step out by faith, to walk by faith and not by sight, knowing that your word never leads us astray and your word never disappoints. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.